this morning, um, this is a sermon for us. This is a sermon uh, for you, and this is a sermon for me. Uh, the series that we've been, we've been walking through uh, for the past three weeks, The Elephant in the Room, um, Danny has, uh, has just pastored us well. He's shepherded us really, really well over the past three weeks, talking about some issues that are current in our culture. Um, and uh, for some of us in the room, probably more than we would imagine, it's current uh, for our lives and for our own families. As we've talked about um, racism, uh, talked about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage, um, it has been easy for us to see those things as elephants in the room here for our church family. It's just kind of each, each of the three of them just sitting right in the middle, and we all know that they're going on, but this is not the place that we talk about them. This is not the place that we name them. And that's exactly what we have done. We've seen these three issues. We've seen how Jesus speaks directly into these issues with the gospel. We've seen hope. We've seen grace. But there's also been this tendency to look at these three issues and say, that's not me, that's not me, and that's not me. Those are issues, and they all affect our culture. They're all affecting families. And and we all, without a doubt, know someone or a family that was affected by all three of the issues that we've talked through for the past three weeks. But what we are talking about this morning, this is for us. This is for all of us. We know guilt and we know shame and we know it all too well. We've all experienced it. We've all identified it in ourselves. We've all felt those feelings. We're gonna use two uh, working definitions for these two words today. Guilt. Guilt is a verdict. It's an awareness of failure against a standard. Um, You do something and you are deemed guilty. You break a standard, you break um, uh, uh, boundaries with which um, you were uh, set to work or to live or to function as as a parent, as a spouse, as a child. You break those and the verdict is guilty. This is not feeling, this is fact. Guilt is an awareness of a failure against a standard. The second is shame. Shame is a response to guilt, and shame is a feeling, right? Shame is a sense of being exposed of failure before someone else. So we've got guilt, fact, we've got shame, feeling, and this dynamic duo, they walk hand in hand really close and and really close in step. Where one is, the other is close to follow. And this is part of our human experience, right? Even as I'm talking about this now, there are some of you that when you knew that we were going to be talking about guilt and shame today, you didn't want to come because I'm saying these two words and you're automatically self-associating with issues in your life where you have known your guilt and you have felt your shame. And I have to, just for the sake of full disclosure, that say even in preparing a sermon like this, have become so intensely aware of my own guilt and reminded of feelings of shame. We're in this together. But this has not always been what the human experience has been like. The world did not start off like this. Whenever creation started, there was no guilt, there was no shame, there was no broken relationship. God created man to live in a garden of perfection. And they lived there together. There was no offense There was no verdict that was handed out in in direct offense toward God in the beginning. There was no shame. There was no reason to hide or to have fear or to be afraid. Adam didn't know what it was like to live in broken relationship with God when he was first created. He didn't know what it was like to live in broken relationship with his wife when he was first created. 
This is not how things began. And this is exactly when we look at Genesis chapter 2. It's the way that Genesis 2 ends. Creation is complete. It is full. And what God says is that man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were in the garden together and they were naked and they were not ashamed. They were fully exposed to each other and fully exposed before God. And they knew no shame. But then we transition. We move to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that relationships drastically change here. Here, um, disobedience and doubt and rebellion, they're all introduced. This perfect harmony that God had set into place is broken. Temptation is elicited. Response is chosen. Disobedience occurs. And that relationship that was once perfect is now strained. It seems even irreparable that a holy God that would create man to live in perfect relationship with himself and perfect relationship with other, that he would be disobeyed, a direct affront toward his authority. But they did it. They had an appetite. They had desire. And that appetite met that desire and it flung into will and it ended up with this, these mouths full of fruit. And it's almost as if they're eating this fruit which they've been told not to take of. And as the fruit's going down their throat, they automatically, it's like they know their guilt even in that moment. That's the way chapter three, verse seven reads. Their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. Pick up with me in a verse in a Genesis chapter three. We're going, to look in, uh, we're going to look in verse 8. This is where we pick up. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from his presence, the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This scene, we have to imagine, is quite different than what um, Adam and Eve, their interactions with God, had been like before. The way that, um, that Genesis is written, it sounds like the sun is going down, it's kind of in the cool of the day, and God is taking his stroll through the garden like he usually did. And Adam and Eve, they hear him, and instead of being filled with the joy of seeing their creator, of seeing their father, they hide, they tuck themselves away, and God calls for them. Not in an accusatory, condemning way, but God calls for them in question. It's almost like in his asking, he's even teaching them. He says, where are you? And Adam, he responds, I heard you coming. I knew what I had done wrong and I hid. God's response was, who told you? How did you end up here? And we move into this process of guilt that's followed by shame. And this is what happened with our first parents, this perfect world that God created, relationship that was unhindered, whenever sin, when that doubt, unhealthy doubt, rebellion and disobedience, when they enter it into the world, 
It has left this legacy that has followed for all generations, even to us now. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter three. If you wanna go ahead and flip there, we're gonna reference this in just a second. Romans chapter three, he talks about this legacy of sin that our first parents, that Adam and Eve have left and how it's carried from generation to generation to generation all the way down to us. So when we look at our first parents and we see the introduction of guilt and shame, we see that something that, that we experience today and we experience it on our own. If we had entered into this world, if we'd entered into this world without guilt, there would be a chance that we would be able to prove or to acquire our own righteousness, that we would be able to restore right relationship with God all on our own. But what the scriptures tell us and what we're gonna read here in just a second is that we don't have to be taught how to live in defiance toward a holy God. We don't have to, we don't have to be taught or coerced in such a way that we would land in the verdict of guilt and that shame would follow close after. We are hardwired for sin. It's this mark, this birthmark that was just left on all of us because of our first parents. And when we come into this world, we come in with it. We, um, my wife Holly and I, we uh, had our fourth child about a month ago. And it's crazy, we look at him and he's of course perfect in every, he's not, per- he is, he's perfect. Um, he's perfect in every way. He's got this awesome full head of Kasaboom hair. We have hairy babies for some reason. They just have lots, I mean, not like monkey hairy, but like on your head hairy. Um, I guess, anyway, um, so he's just this perfect, awesome looking baby. And he comes out and we look at him and the first thought that comes into my mind, literally, and this didn't happen with the other three, is I wonder what his life is going to be like, right? I wonder what God's plans for him are. I wonder how he's gonna use this little boy that's gonna grow into a young man that Lord willing will one day be a husband and a father and a grandfather, How is God going to use him? But also in that same moment, I thought about, I wonder what kind of difficulty he is going to face in life. He's so perfect, he's so innocent, but he comes into this world hardwired for rebellion and disobedience. We've not had to teach any of our children to be selfish. Not had to teach any of them how to lie, not had to teach any of them how to want what they want and appetites that they have, and they are great kids, but just like I was, just like you were, we all come into this world hardwired for sin. This is what Genesis, um, this is what uh, Romans chapter three tells us starting in uh, verse 10. Uh, Paul, he's writing about this, this mark of guilt that is on all of us thousands of years after the fall in the garden, after man chose, chose rebellion and disobedience. In verse 10, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruins and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a bleak and weary picture of the condition of man. We are guilty. There is a standard that God has set in place and we have doubted it. We have rebelled against it and we have disobeyed. It is who we are. 
We are full of guilt. And as we are full of guilt and not living to the standard that God has set for us, our shame follows close at hand. And I think that there are three ways that we deal with guilt and we deal with shame. And I want to process these with you for just a minute or two, uh, not to box you in. There may be a way that you deal with guilt and shame that may be outside of what we're going to talk through in these three steps. But I think this opens the door for a little kind of self-analysis of as I'm talking about the shame, this human condition that we all live in, how are you in your gut? How are you responding to that verdict that has been laid down on our lives? What do we do with that shame, that feeling of being made, uh, being exposed of our failure, of our shortcoming? What do we do with those things? The first thing uh, that I think we can do is we, we shift the blame of guilt to avoid shame. We shift the blame of guilt to avoid shame. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they did an amazing job of setting this example for us, right? Um, We read the account just a few minutes ago in Genesis chapter three. God uh, asks them what they've done. He asks Adam, what what has he done? And what does God do? He, He blames two people. He says, the woman that you, God, he blames God, that woman that you, the woman, gave me, she gave me that fruit. She gave it to me and then I looked at it and I ate it. Then sin came, the wrong that I have, the guilty verdict on my life, it is because of someone else. God, it's your fault and it's her fault. God then turns to Eve, her response, woman, what did you do? Her response is that serpent, that snake, that thing that you created that that was in the garden, he came to me, he deceived me. The blame is shifted. We're turning it outside of ourselves onto someone else. If only this had not happened, I wouldn't have responded the way that I did. If only my kids would listen, if only my friends would care about me, if only my, my boss would pay attention to me, if only I would be acknowledged for what I'm doing, if only they would care, if only she would listen, guilt would not be mine. We shift it. We send it someplace else. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp, he calls this atoning externalism that we would be covered up by something outside of ourselves, that we would be able to, for ourselves, make a way to cover us. And we do that by shifting our guilt, our responsibility to someone else. I think that as we think in this room about our own guilt and our own shame, and we look outside of ourselves, looking for someone to blame it on, there are lots of places that we can turn. We can turn toward culture, we can turn toward people, But in the end, the ultimate responsibility for our guilt lies on us. Places, situations, people, they only lay the groundwork for us to display what we already are, which is guilty. They only set the stage for it. I feel like this is the mantra of parenting. You are responsible for you. He did not make you hit him. He did not make you want to act in defiance or response or hate or the way that you speak toward him. You're responsible for you. The second way that I think that we respond to guilt and to shame is that we deny our guilt in an attempt to feel no shame. We deny our guilt in an attempt to feel no shame. We were um, doing prep for the sermon and um, just kind of talking through the idea of guilt and shame. And I recognize that all of us deal with these things very, very differently. And so we're going around the room kind of talking about how we each personally maybe deal with the idea of guilt and shame. 
and came to the conclusion that there are some of us that feel like we're not guilty in the first place. And so we just deny it. We, it's, it's almost like we're saying, what more do you want of me? I, I work, I provide for my family, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm covering up, covering all the bases in the way that I should. What really am I doing wrong? Or maybe instead of denying it in a way that we overtly just say, I'm not guilty, we look at our lives and we try and just construct these, these false fronts, these, these things that would cause us to look like something that we're not. And we work hard to keep those false fronts up, to make everything look perfect, to deny our guiltiness in such a way that no one would know about it, that I would not be exposed, that I would not experience shame. And in turn, we end up feeling defeated by ourselves and feeling guilty even unto ourselves because we're failing to live up to the standard that we ourselves have set in place. We act like we're not guilty. We paint a picture that says that we're not guilty or even we compare ourselves to someone else. We say, man, I I realize that I have some stuff going on, but it's surely not as bad as they are. I've got my own mess. I've got my my own issues, my own reasons for guilt. But if I compare it to, I'm really not that bad. This is just like um, Jesus when he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that in John? There was this Pharisee and he had gone to pray and he's standing up there and he's saying, God, thank you for not making me like that adulterer or that extortioner or that that cheater. Thank you for sure for not making me like that tax collector over there. Surely, surely I'm not guilty. Surely he is the one that is. And Jesus' response about that tax collector, he reveals what was going on in his heart in this parable, in this story. He was broken over his guilt He was crying out in the midst of his shame of feeling exposed, asking for forgiveness. He knew who he was. That Pharisee's comparison, it got him nowhere. So we can deny, we can we can deny, we can cover it up, we can paint this false front. But in the end, the verdict is all the same. We are guilty. Are you feeling the weight of this? Yeah, you feel it? Like right now you're feeling really bad about yourself, right? I feel it, okay? I'm almost to the point, like in the sermon, like I get it, we're guilty, right? I think there's a third way that we respond to guilt. I think that we are consumed by guilt and owned by shame. Just as much as there are those of us in this room that want to deny, deny that we are guilty for sake of not feeling shame, there are those of us in this room that cannot help but think about it. And I think that there are a lot of us in here today. We know our guilt and we know it all too well. In fact, it is the thing that we work to suppress. We try to push it back. We see everything through the lens of our guilt. We feel shame at all times. It's like this open wound, this thing that has happened in my past. And anytime anyone talks toward it or gets near it, I want to cry out because it hurts. I feel like I'm being judged, like I'm being condemned because I know my shame and I know my guilt so well. I know it so well. I'm consumed by it. When I was in a third grade, I had the best third grade teacher ever. Her name uh, was Mrs. Norman. 
And um, she uh, would do spelling tests like normal third grade. Do they still do spelling tests? Like normal third grade teachers, they do spelling tests. And um, one day she did the spelling test. And while she was uh, calling out the words, I noticed that one of the words that she called out, it was welcome. Um, one of the words that she called out was listed on the bulletin board that was directly in front of my desk. Okay. So I look up in an opportunistic way and remember that I can get this one right. And I copy it from the board because evidently I did not know how to spell welcome when I was in third grade. I think I probably should have. Um, but after that point, after that point, I remember like feeling this intense guilt. Like I had cheated. I had done something wrong. There was a standard I was supposed to know what was expected of me. I was to perform. And I was consumed with this shame. And I carried it around for a couple days. And I remember eventually going to Mrs. Norman and saying, hey, I, I, I'm guilty. I copied it from the board. I got it right I shouldn't have. And she looked at me and she, you know, she probably didn't even realize that she had it written on the board in the first place. <laughs> and she said, it's okay, it's, it's, it's no big deal. She extended grace to me. But you know, that same feeling that I felt in third grade is a feeling that I have felt um, with my wife where I have felt guilt and shame and I know that I've wronged her. It's a feeling that I've felt toward my children where I feel guilt and I feel shame and I know that I've wronged them. And at times I have a hard time getting over it. I, I own it like it's the only way that I can perceive myself and the only way that other people perceive me. I'm guilty and there is no way that this wrong can be made right. There's no way there's no way. And so this elephant of guilt and shame that's in the room, it's like sitting on my chest and I can barely breathe because of it. I know it all too well. These are ways that we naturally respond to guilt and shame. We deny, we act like it's, it's not happening. We say that it's not our problem, it's not, it's not our issue. We shift the blame. We're owned by it. This is a natural response. But how does Jesus, how does Jesus enable us to respond to guilt and shame? Okay? All this feeling that we are feel, feeling, this, this I feel shame, I'm acknowledging my guilt, the heaviness that we feel from our own condition, what it does is it makes the goodness of Jesus shine even brighter. That we of ourselves, we cannot rid ourselves of our guilt. We cannot say enough good things about who we are to push down our shame. That only Jesus, who lived up to the perfect standard of God, that he did that in our place. He is the only one that can take our guilt and that can put away our shame. Paul writes about it again in Romans chapter 5. Um, he says it like this. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, just like we talked about with Adam, just as the entrance of sin into the world led to condemnation, led to the mark of, of sin and guilt for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification, to being made right and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous that Jesus stands in our place as perfection, as the guiltless, spotless lamb that knows no shame, 
that he came and he lived in our existence in this world that has been broken and fractured by rebellion. And he lived in perfection without flaw, without error, in no way pushing and disobedience away from his father. He came, he lived, and he died on a cross, taking the guilt, the punishment, the shame for our sins on himself. He died so that we would not have to under the weight of our guilt. He took it, him alone, Jesus Only by one man's act, we are made right. So now when God looks down on us, he does not look at us, those of us that that put our faith and the hope and the redemption that is given to us in Jesus. When God looks down at us, he does not look down and see all of the things that make us guilty. He looks down on us justified, just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always obeyed, just as if we had never done wrong and just as if we had always done right. Because when he looks down on us, he sees Jesus, do you hear me? You are not guilty when you trust in Christ because he took your guilt. He put away your shame. So what you would deny, you cannot because his life proves the cost for it. What you would try to blame on someone else, it is not someone else's issue. It is, it is our own. And what you would say is guilt that you can never get past it has been paid for ultimately with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In him alone. So how does he empower us to respond to guilt and to shame? We repent and we believe this unbelievable good news in the gospel. We turn from our guilt. We turn from these self-constructed idols and mirrors that we bow down to over and over again, hoping to deal with our guilt and our shame. And we, we turn from those things. We repent and we turn toward Jesus, believing the good news of the gospel, that it is enough for life. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just, he is right to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through Jesus alone, we are made clean. We are washed of the stain of guilt and shame in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Romans uh, chapter six, verses 16 and 17 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin before Christ, have, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you are to committed. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. Through Jesus, we are no longer owned by the guilt and shame that we would experience. But the way that, the way that, that Paul writes this, we are slaves to righteousness. Righteousness owns us because of Jesus. We respond to guilt, we respond to shame with repentance, turning from sin and turning toward Jesus and believing the good news of the gospel. But I think we take a step past that. We do this internally. This is what the gospel is for us. It's this good news that Jesus is a friend of the guilty. That's what he is. That's what they called him. Look at that man, Jesus. He's a friend of sinners, of the adulterers, of the liars, of the cheaters, of the hoarders, of the addicted. He is their friend. He is our friend, the friend of the guilty. 
so we, we repent and we believe the good news of the gospel. But I think we also need to repent and believe the good news of the gospel together. This church, these people that you're sitting next to, the people that you're in small, were in small group with in Sunday school before you came here are gonna go see after this. This is God's gift to you. It's an expression of himself to the world. Ultimately, he will receive glory because of his church. But we get to experience the goodness of God through the people that are sitting in this room. That when we are processing our own guilt and our own shame and we are striving to repent, to turn from our addiction, from our self-destructive behavior, from feeding our own appetites, as we're striving to repent and to believe, he has given us this body, these people, this family to repent and believe together that we're not on our own, that he put someone physically with us right now to be able to extend grace and hope to one another. James writes about this in in James chapter five. In verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to each other, experience healing. One thing that I wanna be quick to note here is that in the result of our guilt, there are consequences for our actions, okay? Remember with Adam and Eve, with our first parents back in Genesis 3, whenever they made known their shame and their guilt, there were consequences that followed after that. Consequences that have traced down through the rest of humanity. And in our guilt and in our shame and our wrongdoing, there are consequences. People are hurt. Relationships are severely tattered and torn. We ourselves experience consequences that may linger with us in physical, emotional ways for the rest of our lives because of our guilt, because of our wrongdoing. Those things are real. But as we look to believe, repent and believe in the gospel together, we take steps of healing. We, are, we receive healing through our relationship with Christ and the forgiveness and grace that we receive through him. But we also receive healing in hearing a brother or a sister say to us, you are forgiven. I forgive you. I want to forgive you. I'm going to try to forgive you. I, um, I, have, great, I have some great friends in life. God has blessed me with, with an amazing wife and men that really care. Um, there was a, a time probably about a month ago um, where a situation came into play and I, I, felt, I felt shame. I felt, I felt condemned. I felt weak. And it wasn't, it wasn't like there was an overt sin in my life where I'd acted out in a specific way. My sin was unbelief. Believing that God was not in control. And I, uh, I texted a buddy of mine and I said, this is how I feel. I feel weak. I feel condemned. I feel not enough. And God's goodness to me in that moment was not him telling me that I should pull myself up and feel better about myself. He said, you are weak. You cannot do enough, but you are not condemned because of Jesus. 
our need, our guiltiness, it points out our need for Jesus and that he alone can satisfy. He alone can live up to that standard. Not us. Only Jesus. You've been sitting here today and more than likely there is an area, there is a thing that you feel guilt or have felt guilt over. There is something that if we projected it up, up here on the screen, you would feel so much shame that you would want to move to another continent. There is something that recurring over and over again, whether it's your history or your denial or your, your uh, striving for self-preservation, you've tried to shift and cover up. And today is the day that we start the process of repentance and belief that through the work of Jesus Christ and his spirit that lives inside of us when we trust in him, that we can turn from our guilt, the sin that keeps calling us back, and that we can turn to belief in the gospel, that we have been forgiven, that we have been restored, that shame is not ours, but grace is only through Jesus. I want you to bow your heads for just a couple minutes. I want you to process this personally for just a second. The introduction of guilt and shame, the mark of guilt and shame, our own personal guilt and shame. What does that look like? Not for the person that's sitting next to you, but for you. How have you naturally tried to deal with it? How have you tried to push it away or cover it up or act like it's not a big deal? Now for you who are a believer in Jesus, who have put your faith and your hope in him alone, move into a process of repentance and belief. Ask him to help you turn from your guilt and turn from your shame and turn toward belief that Jesus is enough, that he bore publicly on a cross your guilt and your shame so that you wouldn't have to carry it around with you for the rest of your life or try to hide it. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Like we read in John, maybe you need to confess and receive the cleansing that only comes through Christ. There are also some of you in the room today that as I talk about guilt and shame, I don't have to talk about Jesus at all. You may not be in relationship with him, but you know what the feeling of shame and the knowledge of guilt are because it's intrinsic to the human experience and you have not known what to do with it. You fought hard to cover it. You've wanted to push it away. And today I need to tell you truth that Jesus is the only answer to your guilt. 
Jesus is the only answer to your shame. A relationship with him is the only way for it to be covered and dealt with. Trust in him today. Father, this morning as we read scripture and are reminded of who we are, a people that are guilty, a people that are prone to shame, a people that even at times feel in complete despair because we know how we have acted, we know what we have done. We thank you for reminding us of the goodness of Jesus that he is our righteousness, that he does make us right with you, that we don't have to work to cover or to restore or to attain, but we trust in Jesus and him alone. Father, we thank you that at the point of sin, of rebellion, that you had a plan and that that plan would be made uh, fully realized through the person of Jesus Christ that you would redeem us, that you would restore us, that you would take our guilt upon yourself, Jesus, extending us forgiveness, extending us grace. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we are not held captive by sin, but we are held captive by your goodness to us and the righteousness we receive through you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.